The scripture reading will be from Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 16, 1 through 12. If you want to follow along in your pew Bible, it's page 1044. Hear the word of God. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about the bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is the word of the Lord. For some weeks now, we have been dealing with the Gospel of Matthew and the reality that Matthew is bringing us to consider our belief. I said to you a couple of weeks ago that at the deepest recesses of the human life, the deepest part of who you are, what defines you as a person and what defines me as a person is belief. If this is the case, then the major question of my life and the major question of your life is this. What do you believe? We've been confronting that question for some weeks because Matthew is writing a gospel that is meant to speak to you at the level of belief. At the deepest part of your heart, what do you believe? For those of us who are believers, as we take that and we think about our belief, and I think that uh, we have gathered here in this building, we have built this whole facility and we've covenanted together because we have proclaimed together, we believe Jesus is the Son of God, that He died and rose again, and that He's coming back. And for those of us who are believers, if we believe Jesus is Savior and King, then there comes another question for us, and that is, why do I keep and why do I continue to struggle with sin and unbelief? So we confess with the gospel writer, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You see, we struggle with sin in our life. We say we believe, but our lives play out and they, they live out in different ways as if we don't believe very often. And our, our unbelief causes us to go away from Christ. 
Some struggle with belief and, and their unbelief because they would go to the Lord and they would see the things of God, maybe even the gospel, maybe the, the very heart of the gospel, this resurrection. And we say, well, that, that's too far-fetched. I really, surely, Pastor, you don't, you don't really want me to believe that somebody died and rose again and he's no longer dead. For some of us, we say we really struggle with our belief because it causes me to change too much in my life. There's too much that would be different if I really believed and that was played out in my life. Some would say, I've really never experienced what other, people's have, what, what other people have experienced or what others have done either today or even as I look back in the Gospels and the New Testament. And so it's hard for me to believe because I don't have those kinds of experiences. This morning's passage before us is going to unveil two major causes of our unbelief. What drives our lives to continue to struggle with sin and belief? Because if at our heart, in our deepest level, we were believing, then we would be changing the world. We would be obeying Christ's command and we would continue to see God doing work. And we see bits of that. We have tastes of that as believers. And then we Go back and struggle. So this morning as we come to Matthew's gospel, I want to speak to those of us in this room who would cry out with the gospel writer, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So let's look at what Matthew teaches us here. Matthew, if you're just joining us, is telling us the story of Jesus. That's all this gospel is. It's calling us to know who Jesus is and to place our faith in him. Matthew is leading his reader to believe in Jesus Christ at the deepest level of who you are, to trust Him as the Savior, as the King who redeems and rules. He is showing us that we can believe in Jesus. He is the one sent from God to be our Redeemer, to be our King, to set up a forever kingdom. In just the previous chapters to chapter 16, we've seen some miraculous things that Jesus has done which would lead us to believe He is the King. We've seen Him, seen him minister in Galilee and heal all of those who are sick, all of those that come to Him and then feed 5,000, showing us Jesus is the new Moses. He is the one leading us into the promised land. This miraculous work, as we see what He does, calls us to believe in Him as provider, as healer. Then we saw him go into the Gentile land and do the exact same thing. He feeds 4,000 after he has healed them. And they've been with him for three days. He says, I'm unwilling to send them home. We have seen Jesus as the healer, as the provider who invites us to come and trust him. We've seen a Canaanite woman display incredible faith in Jesus Christ. She's desperate for Jesus and the power of His kingship. However, as you've gone through this, you've also seen that not everyone believes the truth of Jesus. And those who do believe, namely in our text, the disciples, they don't always get it. Just like us. And so in the context of Jesus' miraculous ministry here, 
He's back in Galilee at the end of chapter 15, verse 39. He's come out of the Gentile land, back into Galilee, and has another confrontation with the religious leaders. And in this text, Matthew is going to confront the reader, you and I, with two major dangers that will crush our faith, that will crush our belief. And so this morning, as we walk through these 12 verses, I just want to bring to us these two major dangers that will crush our belief. Lord, help our unbelief. Expose this in our hearts. Let's look at it together. First, in verses 1 through 4, Jesus is going to be confronted yet again with the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's come back into the land of Galilee, and immediately we see the Pharisees and Sadducees came to him. The religious leaders come to Jesus. And so the first major danger to your faith and mine, to our belief, what will, ha- what will cause us to follow after unbelief at the level of our hearts is this. Number one, intentional ignorance. I could say it differently, willful blindness. We intentionally do not follow after Christ, do not consider Christ, do not believe His Word, And that's where the Pharisees and Sadducees are. And so I want to expose in us this morning this danger of intentional ignorance as we come to this text. Those who hear, those who see, those who experience and know the truth about Jesus refuse to believe. They refuse to consider the facts. They are in intentional ignorance. They experience, they hear the teaching, they see Jesus, and yet they refuse to consider the facts. Perhaps some of them would come and see this, and they seem to be in this text asking for, requiring even, something more. There are those that come to Christ and they see what He's done. You have seen what Christ has done in others. You have seen what, how He has worked, how He's changed lives, how He's given hope, and yet it's never enough. There are some that would come and say, no matter what Jesus does, no matter what He says, no matter what He shows about Himself, we always need one more. I need to know one more prophecy that was fulfilled. I need to see one more miracle. I need to hear one more teaching. I need one more bit of assurance in order for me to follow after this Jesus that you are proclaiming. That is intentional ignorance. I see and hear and experience. I see what you're teaching. I see what the Bible says about Jesus. I see the truth of his life, but it's not enough for me. You see, the real problem here in this text, and those of us who struggle with intentional ignorance toward Christ, our real problem is that we have put ourselves in the place of God, and we will not humble ourselves under him to consider Christ. So when confronted with Jesus and his message, they come in chapter 16 and test him. They test him, the Bible says. Isn't this an interesting word if you go back in Matthew's gospel that the Pharisees and Sadducees are testing Jesus? Back in Matthew chapter 4, this is exactly the same word that's used of Satan testing Jesus. And their test is simply this. They ask him to show them a sign from heaven. Now back in chapter 12, the Pharisees and the scribes were with Jesus and they asked for a sign from him. Here, the Pharisees and Sadducees are saying, They're one-upping the the ante here. Show us a sign from heaven. In other words, show us a sign that will make it very, very clear that this is from God, that this is from heaven, that there's no question that you're from God. Now, church, 
remember where we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. Miraculous healings. Jesus showing His power over nature. Jesus showing His power and authority over demons to say, Be gone and they must be gone. And even His power over death is not enough. They now have to come and say, We see all that. We've considered it. We need more. Give us a sign from heaven. They are testing Jesus with the idea that we're going to show how he fails. If he does not respond to our request, then he's clearly not from heaven. What they're doing is placing themselves above God and saying, we need to manipulate you. Now, let me say this to you because I hear it quite often. Our God is not a contestant on your let's make a deal game. He doesn't come to you and say, would you please follow me? And you say, well, God, if you will do this and this, let me make a deal with you. If you'll show me a sign from heaven, then I will follow after you. That's not our God. Our God is the king who is king forever. And he says, I am the king. Follow me. And you and I humble ourselves under him and say, we will follow. When you try to test God and say, God, I'm in this place in my life. If you would just do this, then I'll believe. Do you know why that's not good? Because it's never enough. When you get into another hard spot, you put yourself above God again. And you try to manipulate God again. And say, well, God, if you'll just do this, then I'll give this part of my life to you. If you'll just do this, then I'll give this part of my life. That's intentional ignorance of who God is and what you know about the king. God does not beckon to your wishes and your calls and your test. He says, I'm king. Trust me. Put yourself under me and follow me, not the other way around. God responds to all of our tests and that makes us God and him just a genie in a lamp that we rub the lamp and say, here's what I want you to do today. That's not the God of the Bible. And if it's the God you're serving, you're serving an idol. Or excuse me, intentional ignorance. Look at Jesus' response to them in verse 2. He answered them, When it's evening, you say it'll be fair weather, for the sky's red. In the morning, it'll be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. Now, you've heard this statement before. Jesus says it in a way that perhaps you have not heard. It's not the way that I heard it growing up. I always heard my dad say, I remember it from from the time I was a small child. He was in the Navy, so he'd always say, red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning, sailor take warning. You know the sign. Jesus just says, hey, you guys know how to interpret the weather. You're good weather men. You're horrible spiritual religious leaders. It's essentially what he's saying here. You look at the same sign. Notice this. You look at the same sign, red sky. It's beautiful. Doesn't the sky just call our attention to stop? When you see a red sky, you look at it and you immediately know, he says, what the weather's going to be. Now listen to this. It's the same sign. You just know how to interpret the time of the weather. If you see it in the morning you know this is a warning. If you see it at night, you know this is good news. It's the same sign, and you know whatever time you see it determines what the sign means. And so note what I believe Jesus is teaching them here. In this, he is saying to them, while you know how to interpret the signs of the time with the weather, 
You don't know how to interpret the signs of the time with eternity and eternal things. Religious leaders, you have wisdom in temporal matters like weather, but you have refused to see the obvious signs that point to Jesus. Matthew has been careful, perhaps more careful than any other gospel writer, to show us and to point out all along the way that Jesus' birth, His life, His ministry are fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. That when you see the sign of Jesus, when you see how He was born, when you see what His ministry uh, uh, consists of, when you will see His death, burial, and resurrection, it is clearly pointing us to this is the promised one from Genesis. Genesis 3, from all of the Old Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything God said would come. He is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. He is the king. Matthew has pointed that out. And here in his gospel, Jesus is pointing to the Pharisees and saying, when you see the beauty of the red sky, you have sense enough to determine the, what time it is you see it determines the meaning. Now, what I'm telling you is, you are seeing the same sign that everyone else is seeing, you're seeing the same sign that the disciples are seeing, and you don't have sense enough to know what it means. You see, nobody looks at a red sky and says, oh my, I wonder if it's morning or evening. You already know whether it's morning or evening. And you know what the sign then means. They had no wisdom. When you are wowed by the beauty of the red sky, you automatically know what it means. When you're wowed by the beauty of the birth and ministry of our Savior at the right time in history that God, saw, that God sent Him, you should clearly know what it means. And yet they say it's not enough. Give us something else. Some of you today have seen God work over and over in this life. You've seen Him work in other people's lives. And yet you're sitting here and you're still thinking, if I could just see one more, if I could just have one more sign, if I could just hear this, if I could just see that, if I could just experience that. I used to pray that way. I have been in a time young in my walk with Christ where I said, Lord, if I could just hear you like Isaiah heard you, then I wouldn't have any questions. And God came back and said to me clearly as I'm standing here with you, I have given you the entire revelation. This is the word of God. Isaiah had one little bit. I've given you the whole story, including the end. So believe it. And yet many will walk away and still not surrender everything of their lives to this Christ. You see the same signs that the disciples saw. You see the same signs that the other believers in this place are seeing. And yet you don't have wisdom to know they're pointing to a kingdom that will have no end. Don't walk away from here yet again in your intentional ignorance against our God. Now, doesn't end there. Jesus exposes this a little further. So let me just kind of let the Spirit do some heart surgery on some of us today, exposing our lives. Listen carefully, verse 4. You know how to interpret the signs of the, time, or the weather, but you don't know how to interpret spiritual signs of the eternal. Verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Now, I don't know if you know, we said last week that Jesus was a bit insulting to uh, the Canaanite woman, when he was pushing her, 
and her faith. I don't know if there's any more insulting that you can do than to call a religious leader a spiritual adulterer. These are folks that prided themselves on how they lived before God and how they honored God. I want you to know it is an absolute insult for Jesus to say, you are a spiritual adulterer because you're seeking this sign. None will be given except the sign of Jonah, he says. Now, let's, let's open that up a little bit, and I want you to let the Spirit of God just kind of pull back the door of your heart and your belief for a moment because spiritual adultery is a serious charge, and when you and I are living in unbelief, we too meet this description in our own lives. Spiritual adultery, what is it? You know what adultery is. Adultery is simply this, giving love that belongs to my spouse to someone else, right? Giving love that belongs to my spouse and only my spouse to someone else. Jesus is saying, you are giving love, worship, honor to someone or something else who does not deserve it. It belongs only to God. You are giving your worship, your obedience, your wonder to something or someone else. You are spiritual adulterers and an evil generation. You see, the Pharisees here are teachers of the law who have held to a strict observance of the law as defined by their many rules recorded in the Mishnah. They make rules after rules after rules. They make rules on their rules about how their traditions will help them be acceptable to God. You and I are not too far from that. We have things that we expect of others. Well, you can't be holy unless you do that. Well, you can't be accepted by God unless you do that. We make rules upon rules upon rules as well. And the the Pharisees were taking their traditions and they honored them, as we saw just a couple of chapters ago, even more than they honored the Word of God. And they believed that they were accepted by God through their own holiness, what they could do. Now, there are some of us sitting here that in intentional ignorance, we still believe God is going to accept me when I'm good. And God is not going to accept me when I'm bad. And we neglect the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, what's going on here that makes them an adulterer is they loved their own power to change their own lives, but Jesus exposes their inability to make themselves holy, and that is offensive. When you love your own power to change your life instead of surrendering it, dying to Christ, then you have missed what the gospel teaches in your life and you too, my friend, have become a spiritual adulterer. If you believe you're accepted by God because of your own holiness, then you are missing the gospel. The Sadducees, on the other hand, predominantly from a wealthy class of Jews known for seeking political and social approval through their own possessions. There's so many idols in that, I don't even know that we can address them all. They loved approval. They loved the approval of others. They loved it so much that it changed what they did. They lived for the approval of someone else. Their minds were always on, what are they going to think? What is so-and-so going to say if I do this? Can I get affirmation from everybody else? And that's what they were living for. But Jesus teaches that there's only one whose approval that you need, and there's only one way that you can gain it, and it is by, through, repentance and faith in Jesus, who is the only one that can make us acceptable to the judge, the Father. And in that 
exposing of their desire, their belief that if I get approval, that's real life. Jesus exposing that. He's exposing their spiritual adultery. They love their possessions. They were a wealthy class that lived by their possessions. But Jesus teaches that earthly possessions can gain you nothing. There's only one possession that matters, and it's eternal life. And he's already told us parables about how we should sell, give away, go to the ends of the earth to seek one thing that matters and that will be eternal. They weren't willing to do that. When you're going after the things of this world, you're showing, you're revealing that I really don't believe Dying to me will bring me to life. I believe that approval. I believe that possessions. I believe that power. I believe that pleasure. I believe that comfort. Whatever it may be that you believe will bring you true life is what is ruling your heart. And it exposes your real belief. Even if you can state the right belief to your brothers and sisters sitting around you in this place. Your life is exposing Your true belief. And Jesus says your spiritual adulterer. No better than these Pharisees and Sadducees. Intentional. Intentional. Ignorance. You see that would make us spiritual adulterers. You and I are in the position. To be intentionally ignorant. To ignore the clear teachings of our Savior. Even when it it, it challenges our treasured idols. So much so. So much so that we're willing to partner with unlikely friends, unlikely others that are adulterers because they help us justify our own idols. Pharisees and Sadducees were never friends. They sat on the Sanhedrin together and we see them here coming together, but they never agreed on anything except we don't like this gospel. We don't like this Savior. You will have friends in your life. That's one thing that I'll say. One sign that you have fallen to this danger is that you love those who are opposed to Christ because they can affirm your idolatry. So what do we do? Very quickly, how do we defeat this major danger in our faith? I'll just give you two things. Number one, the one thing that they did not do, consider the evidence. Consider the evidence. Jesus states, one sign will be given. Isn't this grace down in verse 4? An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. Can you imagine Jesus saying this? The Pharisees and Sadducees trying to trust him, trying, excuse me, trying to test him, and he says, You evil and spiritual adulterers, I'll not give you a sign except one, the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? Can you imagine them going back and grabbing their scrolls, trying to read? What, what's the sign of Jonah? What is that? They start, start asking one another, We've got to see this sign. What is he talking about? The, the Sadducees, they're grabbing their scrolls, frantically looking for Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? Do you know the Pharisees say, We've already had this conversation with him before. Some of you will notice that back in chapter 12, verse 40, we have this same conversation with Jesus with Pharisees and scribes. And the Pharisees say, well, let us just tell you what he already means. It's crazy. You're not going to understand it. But we'll go ahead and tell you. Jesus said to us in a former conversation, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Listen to me. The sign that you must face, the one sign that you cannot get around, that's the foundation of our our faith that will bring you to a point of surrendering to the king is the sign of Jonah. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Which is problematic. Why? 
because there's a group of Sadducees here, and the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Had to say it, laugh at it, it's my corny joke. They didn't believe in the resurrection, but Jesus says, I am going to die, and on the third day, I'm going to come back from life are from the dead, and I will be alive forevermore. And that, my friends, is the sign that you're going to have to deal with that our faith is built on. One man came to this world, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David, and he gave his life, shed his blood, his body was broken upon the tree so that you and I might have life, and he rose from the dead, conquering death, hell, and the grave, so that we could have life forever and ever. That's the sign. That's what tells us our faith is sure. We don't have to live in intentional ignorance. Give up your idols. Give up what you're going after. True life is found in Jesus Christ and Him alone. So consider the evidence. Do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Secondly, crush your idols and trust the King. Don't only consider the evidence of the one that you should be and are called to and are made to worship Crush your idols. Confront your functional belief. In other words, if in your life you see that, you know what, I can say I believe in Jesus, but I'm living for pleasure, I'm living for possessions, I'm living for power, I'm living for comfort, I'm living for all of these other things, approval of others, then crush those in your life. Starve those ungodly desires for What are God's in your life? Take your thoughts captive. Capture them and confront them with the gospel. You hear me say it. I'll say it again today. Preach the gospel to yourself. As you see those idols coming up in your life, crush them and preach the gospel to yourself and tell yourself, this is the what what I believe and this is the way that I will live because of that belief. Verse 4, Jesus, after this confrontation, departs. So if you're keeping record, and Matthew is, Jesus comes back from a Gentile land in 1539. He is in Galilee again just long enough in these four verses to have had this confrontation with the religious leaders, and then he leaves Galilee yet again for a Gentile land, again on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It reminds us, it tells us, we're headed to the cross. The hostility is growing toward Jesus and this leads us to the second danger that will crush our faith in verses 5 through 12. If the first danger is intentional ignorance, the second danger exposed here in the life of the disciples is unintentional ignorance. Unintentional ignorance. They reach the other side in verse 5 And Matthew informs us in this verse, kind of setting up this whole story for us. Matthew informs us of one detail that precipitates the following exchange between Jesus and his disciples. They had forgotten to bring any food. Now, if you go on a bit of a journey, especially a day's journey, it might not be a big deal if you forget food. For 12 young men traveling together, let me assure you, food is essential. It is not five minutes into a trip with a bunch of young guys before they're saying, hey, Who brought the food? 
What do we have to eat here? They're getting hungry. And so these 12 disciples following after Jesus, Matthew says, big detail, they forgot to bring any food. And so it may not be a problem for you. For them, it was a major problem. Why? There's no McDonald's on the other side of the lake. There's no drive through that you can just pull your little boat up to and order something from a Bojangles to get a biscuit on the way. There's no Domino's that you can call and say, have a pizza for us on the other side. Right? They're not in that day. It's a big deal for them not to have food. So Matthew is telling you this. Store it in the back of your mind as we go through here. And now verse 6, Jesus looks at them as they're in the boat and says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Watch, watch out for, look for, and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now we had just gotten done with that conversation. So you know what's in Jesus' mind. What's in the disciples' mind? We're hungry. My stomach's growling. You guys, who... Matthew, you didn't bring any food. Judas, you were supposed to buy the food. You're keeping the money. Who was supposed to get the food to bring? That's what's in their mind. Jesus thinking about a spiritual conversation he just had. And so they begin a conversation about what does Jesus mean? Their conclusion is simply this. It must have been because we didn't bring any food. We didn't bring any bread. Jesus is upset about it. Just like we're upset. We got to have some bread. And what's going on? So here's their conclusion. You read this kind of down in the end in verse 12 when he says... They understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread. What is their conclusion? It must be something like this. He's warning us not to buy bread from the Pharisees and Sadducees. So guys, when we get over there, we got to go get some bread. Don't buy it from a Pharisee or Sadducee. There must be something wrong with the leaven that they use. Now, it's kind of like this. Me and fast food restaurants. I will I'll just reveal to you that I love McDonald's, all right? I don't know that anybody else does. Most people I talk to, I've never asked somebody, you like McDonald's? No, except Sean Pierce. Sean Pierce is the only person on the face of this world that I know likes McDonald's more than me. I think he goes at least once a day. He's not here today. Y'all tell him I said that about him. But I love McDonald's. But there's one thing about McDonald's that I don't like. I don't know if you've ever been there. You're a connoisseur of McDonald's. You're probably going to say I'm weird from here on out. I judge most fast food restaurants on the kind of ketchup they use. All right, so I'm a ketchup connoisseur. When I was a kid, my kids still can't believe this, I ate ketchup sandwiches. I would eat ketchup with a slice of cheese on a sandwich, nothing else. I love ketchup. I even tried it on cookies when I was little. All right, I love ketchup, but I cannot stand catsup. Anybody with me? You know what I'm talking about? All right, so McDonald's does not serve Heinz ketchup. I love everything else about it. But that one thing has me to judge McDonald's. I really don't like your kind of ketchup. I noticed two weeks ago we went because they had fish sandwiches. This is just free. You didn't come here for this. We have fish sandwiches. Caleb loves fish. We went over there. I think Wendy's has changed to bad ketchup. Now, you take that for what it's worth. Don't say that I'm, I'm advertising for any one restaurant. I don't care. But I judge a restaurant on its ketchup. This is what is going on here. The Pharisees and Sadducees, the disciples think... They must use the wrong brand of leaven. So Jesus doesn't want us to buy their bread when we get there. That's their conclusion. Now guys, don't be so hard on the, fair, the, the disciples here and say, how could they miss it? Because you and I have the same tendency to interpret things by what's fresh in our minds. Remember, 12 guys on a boat who forgot to bring the food. Jesus says, beware of the, fair, the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're like... Man, they must use bad leaven. 
we need to get somebody that uses the right kind of leaven to buy the right kind of bread because we got to fill our stomachs. They are letting their stomachs be the lens through which they interpret what Jesus says. Now get it, the disciples believe Jesus. They trust him wholeheartedly, and yet they are still letting their circumstance, what's immediately in their fleshly desires, be the lens through which they're seeing Jesus' teaching. You with me? So Jesus then has to confront that in them just like he has to confront it in us. He either perceives or actually hears the conversation. The Bible doesn't tell us, but either way he responds to what they're saying. I can just imagine Jesus doing this. You know, I mean, he's putting his hand in his hand saying, guys, how in the world? How long have we been together now? And they are talking about the wrong things. And so Jesus, verse 8, aware of this, says, well, look at the first thing he says, Oh, you of little faith. Immediately, Jesus says, this is not a physical issue, guys. It's a faith issue. And you need to grow in your faith. Aren't you glad, by the way, that our Savior's gracious? Aren't you glad that, I mean, at this point, I know it doesn't really say it, but we're 16 chapters in. We're a couple of years into his ministry. He's getting ready to go to the cross, and they are not getting it. They think that he's talking about leaven, and he's talking about a brand of leaven, right? That's like me, you leaving here, and you shaking my hand at the end of, the, at the end of this aisle and saying, Pastor, I agree with you. I love McDonald's, and that's what you take from the service today. That's where he is. Their faith is weak. And they're blinded from what Jesus is teaching them because of they're so interested in the temporal things of their lives. They're not intentionally blinded, but they are still blinded nevertheless. You see, they're simply distracted. They have a weak and a frail faith. It's not the futile faith of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that will lead them to death and destruction. It is a frail faith, and some of us will experience the exact same thing. We will let the temporal things of our lives take us away from trusting in Christ, and we won't get it. It is a major danger that will crush your faith. Their faith is weak. They're easily distracted. Jesus knows they'll need an unshakable faith, a faith that will give them hope in the face of persecution, in the face of questions, in the face of trials, and even in the face of death. Their faith needs to stand so the gospel can go around the world. And He is patiently challenging them, pulling them to Himself, and bringing them to a point where they will believe and die for their faith in Jesus Christ. And it's exactly what he's doing in you and in me. So today, let's expose our unintentional ignorance. Jesus asked them four questions beginning down in verse 8. Question number one, why are you discussing what is insignificant? Why are you talking about bread, guys? How many times do you and I find ourselves doing exactly that? We say we believe, and yet we see life through the lens of our own fleshly desires, and that controls our conversations. Second question, do you not get it? Do you not get it? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet see? 
You see, he's telling them, I'm speaking to you of realities that are greater than the physical world. They're greater than your stomach. They're greater than the physical desires that you have. The physical things are pointing you, pushing you to real things, the, the spiritual things. I'm showing you in what you know in life, but what you know in life should be pointing you to something that's greater. These are signs of what is greater. Third question, do you not remember? Now, this is, the, this is the obvious duh moment, right? Jesus says, do you not remember? I fed 5,000 with five loaves. I fed 4,000 with seven loaves. Do you, not, do you not remember that? This could have only been two or three days before. I fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. And you think I'm concerned about bread? I'm concerned with way more. Listen, I'm concerned with way more than what you're going to eat tomorrow, where you're going to live tomorrow, what your physical health is. All of that is concerned to our God, but all of that pushes us to a deeper reality. So today, if you're sitting here and something is going on in a relationship, something's happened in your job, something is going on in your financial life, something has happened in your life Physically, even your health is going in a way that you don't understand or don't know. Jesus is saying to you, I can control this physical world and the realities of your life just like that. Trust me, but know I'm doing something way more important than what's going on in your physical life. He is preparing us for an eternal kingdom. Which means my health is just the context in which God is doing something. My hunger is just the context in which God is doing something. My job is just the context in which God is doing something. Do you not know? Do you not remember? Fourth question. How is it then that you fail to understand continually? We look at the disciples and think, How? I didn't get that. I mean, I can even get that. And I'm, I'm no disciple. But we are just like them. And after God, having brought us through some of our stuff, I look on the back and say, how could I have been so foolish, Lord, not to trust you? Not to see what you were doing. So he restates the point in verse 12. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of of the Sadducees and Pharisees. Now, we've already dealt with the teaching, so let's not deal with that. What's he doing in them? He's showing them that you can be unintentionally ignorant if you have weak faith. So, here's the last thing. Stay with me, and I close. How, then, can I avoid the danger of unintentional ignorance? I have three statements that will help us. How can we avoid the danger of unintentional ignorance and turn our weak faith into strong faith. Three statements. Number one, understand the signs of our God. You see, our God did give signs, didn't he? John's gospel is all about signs, the signs that Jesus gave that pointed us to who he was. He just said, I'm not going to put myself under you and give signs that you demand. I'm going to give my signs and you See them, recognize them, worship me. And so here's what I want to say to you. Jesus' life and ministry 
point us to a reality. His physical life on earth was signifying the reality of the kingdom of God. When he was here, death had no power. Despair was cast out. Demons had to flee. Disaster could not continue. Disease could not have any hold on the body. And he is saying, watch this, be healed. Watch this, get up. And Jesus' power was showing us, signifying, this is what I am bringing. Come, follow me. Consider, understand the signs of our Savior. Not the least of which we've already dealt with, the sign of Jonah, the resurrection. Will you believe this king? Secondly, Remember. That's what he says to the disciples. Do you not remember what I've done? One of the great things about our Bible, read through it, is Jesus continually says, remember, remember, remember. The Bible says, remember your faith. The Bible says, lay memory stones that you would remember this and you would teach your children and your grandchildren what God did right here in Joshua. Lay these stones. So there is a deep connection. Listen, there's a deep connection between your faith and your memory. So how can we be intentional about our memory of what God has done? Just a couple of suggestions. Memorize Scripture. I mentioned it already that we need to take the Word of God and put it into our lives and believe it. Our Awana children are memorizing Scripture. May it be that we would memorize Scripture so that we could remember, here is our God, here's who He is, here's what He's done, and I can grow my faith because I know what He has done. Hide God's word in your heart that you might not sin against Him. Memorize Scripture. Secondly, sing about it. Sing about what God has done. Sing about the person and work of Christ. Uh, Aaron chooses our music very carefully because of the words that we would sing would be words that we confess together. The realities of our Savior, who He is, what He's done. And so we need to sing about it. Not only in here, but in your car, at your house, when you're by yourself, when you're with others. Sing about our great God. Have conversations about it. Talk to other people about what God's done. Would you say to someone today what God's done in your life this week? Would you share with someone? It'll help your memory and it'll help their faith. It'll help your faith by you recalling. Talk about what God has done in your life. Don't talk about all this other stuff. Talk about God and what He's done. Listen to the preaching of the Word. This helps us to know our God and to bring to memory what God has done. Journal about it. Write about it. Write down what God has done. Then you can read in years and generations ahead. Here's what God did in my life. Here's what God did in my mom's life. Here's what God did in my grandmother's life. Journal about what God has done. It will help your memory and it will grow your faith. Finally, practice it together as a body. Next Sunday we'll come to this very same place and we'll come to a table set right here that will help us do something in remembrance of our Savior as we partake of His broken body and His shed blood. Remember, practice the ordinances together. Once you have understood and become, be, and become habitual in reminding yourself of the person and work of our God, third statement, look out for and beware of what will pull you away. Intentional and unintentional ignorance will creep in. Church, you have an enemy. And the Bible says it's threefold. The world, your own flesh, and the devil. And your enemy will pull you away from Christ. Look out for and beware of leaven. 
because it's in this world. And just like yeast in bread that saturates every cell of that bread, it will get into you and grow like a cancer until you do not believe. Beware of it. Look out for it.